0: Five, thirteen to fifteen. When Joshua was by Jericho, he lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, a man was standing before him with his drawn sword in his hand. And Joshua went to him and said, "Are you for us or for our adversaries?" And he said, "No, but I am the commander of the army of the Lord. Now I have come." And Joshua fell to his on his face to the earth and worshipped, and said to him what does my Lord say to his servant? And the commander of the Lord's army said to Joshua, take off your sandals from your feet, the place, your, the place where you are standing is holy. And Joshua did so. Thank you, Andy. It's a great passage of scripture to be reading this morning. Would you go ahead and bow your heads and join me in a word of prayer? Oh God, it's so great to be here this morning in your presence and this privilege to hear your word. And so we pray, Lord, that your word would go forth and speak to our hearts. And so we pray this morning that our eyes would be open, that our ears would be open to you, O oh Lord. That you would transform our hearts to make it more into the likeness of your Son. And we ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, when I was a youngin' in the corporate world, um, one of the things that was really interesting to me was this concept of business meetings, going to a business meeting where there were customers. Uh, because it's a bit of a dance that's going on in a meeting with customers. And what do I mean by that? You're, you're in this meeting, and you're meeting new people, and you're trying to figure out who's who. right? And so there's some customs, there's some protocol that goes on, there's introductions, and then there's business cards. Uh, and on those business cards, you do get a title. And you get to figure out, OK, so that person is the director of engineering or technology. That person is the marketing person and whatnot. And so it's starting to give you clues about who's important in the, in the room there. Who is calling the shots? And that's a little bit of the det- detective work that goes on in a business meeting, right? It's who is really in charge here on the other side of the table. Because it's not always evident. It depends on the type of meeting. You know, It might be a type of meeting where uh, the engineering person is in charge. He calls the shot. Or it might be a type of meeting where it's the business guy or marketing guy who is calling the shot. And then, of course, as a wet-behind-the-ears newbie to the corporate world, I was always afraid of asking the wrong question, right, and looking stupid in front of everybody. So part of the deal is trying to figure out what are the right questions to ask, right? And then beyond that, who should I be asking the question to, right? You don't want to go to the marketing guy and ask some detailed technical question. He's not, he's not going to get it, right? And you don't, want to, you don't want to be asking the engineer something about forecasting, you know, an allocation and whatnot. He's not going to get that. You need to know the right question to ask to the right person. And then... And then, if you think you've figured out who is most influential on the other side of the table, you need to know something about that person, right? You need to know a little bit about their character. And why is that? Well, you kinda need to know, do they have a big ego? Uh, Do they need to feel like they are in charge? Are they controlling or are they accommodating? And then you may, if you're wise, you're gonna adjust your approach to that person. So, as we look at our passage this morning in Joshua, uh, this is a little bit about what's going on as Joshua interacts with this this mysterious person. It's almost like he's having a business meeting, if you will, right? He's going to go through this process of trying to discover the identity of this person. And then he's going to recognize the title of the person and all of the implications that go along with it. And then finally, once he understands the character of the person, he's going to respond to the character of that individual. And so just by way of outline, I just kind of gave it to you, right? He's gonna realize, he's gonna realize the identity, he's going to recognize the title, and then he's gonna respond to the character of this mysterious person. Well, before I jump into those three verses and unpack it, Uh, I kind of want to do a rewind here, a recap. Uh, We're at the end of chapter 5, and uh, I know people have been in and out, and so it's kind of good to do a recap. Kind of like, uh, you know, you're watching your TV series, and they they do the introduction, and we're always hitting the skip button, right? So uh, if you've been with us, you can hit the skip button for just like about 30 seconds here. But if you've not, here's what's happened, right? In the very beginning of Joshua chapter 1, Moses has died, and Joshua now is the heir apparent and the Lord has given Joshua promises, promises about the land, promises to be with him. And then in chapter two, it seems like the main plot of the storyline takes a left turn, and we had that interesting account where Israel sends spies over into enemy territory, and then they cut a deal with a prostitute and her family. And then in chapter three, we go back to the main storyline, what we think is the main storyline, And we have Israel miraculously crossing the Jordan River, uh, and then they pick up these stones of remembrance, right? To remember the work of God, to remember who he is. And then we looked at Israel renewing their obedience by doing what? Being circumcised, taking on the sign of the covenant, and then celebrating with the Passover. And that's where our passage has us right now. The story is building. We are on the verge of war. We're about to hit, you know, the big part, the action part, right? And so our scripture says, Joshua, he was by Jericho. Now, why is that? Why was he by Jericho? He's all by himself by Jericho. Uh, Scripture doesn't tell us, but we can surmise maybe what he is doing. He is trying to figure out, well, I'm supposed to take Jericho. How am I going to do that? God had not given him the battle plan yet, right? Realize that. He doesn't have the battle plan. So maybe Joshua is thinking, okay, maybe it's not gonna be something extraordinary. Maybe it's, he's just gonna work through my natural gifts, the gifts that he has given me as a leader, as a military commander. So I'm gonna check out Jericho, and I'm gonna figure out what's the best way to take down this city. Uh, and then I think, actually... He's praying. I think he's praying, and I say that because his eyes are down. Our scripture says he lifts his eyes up, and what does he see? He sees a man with a sword drawn. And the, and the big question that we have when we approach these few verses, I think everybody has this question, is who is this man? Who is that masked man? Right? Who is he? And we're going to unpack that We're going to unpack that idea as we see how Joshua realizes the identity of this man. We're going to do that uh, by looking at three clues that the passage gives us. Three clues, okay? First clue is the title that the man gives. The second clue is how Joshua responds to that title. And then the third clue is the disclosure of the character of that person and then how Joshua responds. And so here we are, we've got this soldier right in front of Joshua, okay, he lifts up his eyes, and this is the way I see the scene. This person, he has the drop on Joshua, you know what I mean by that? He's already has his sword drawn, and Joshua looks up, and all of a sudden, he's caught unaware, and Joshua, we know, is probably a great soldier, by intuition, he may have reached for his sword, and he asks... Who are you? He asked the, the pertinent question we think is, whose side are you on? Whose side are you on? And there is where our first clue comes from, is the response to this question that the man gives. He says, no. We're going to unpack that a little bit later. But then he gives the title. He says, I am the commander of the army of the Lord. And I'm going to remind you again, when we see in Scripture, L-O-R-D in capitals, this is Yahweh. I am the commander of the army of Yahweh. This is Yahweh's army. And maybe for a moment, Joshua would have thought to himself, wait, I thought I, thought I was the commander of the army of the Lord. Who, who is this guy? And he would have recalled the promise in chapter one where God says, Joshua, you, you are the one I'm going to make you cause Israel to inherit the land. And so who is this person now? Well, it's, It's not a man then, it's somebody greater than me, right? Perhaps he is the commander of the heavenly armies or even also the heavenly armies and the earthly army of the Lord, but he's not a man. And then our second clue comes with Joshua's response to this, what does he do? Falls down on his face and worships. Now in scripture, We see this uh, over and over again, and when it comes to an angel falling down in front of an angel, the angels don't receive worship, do they, right? And I'm thinking of Revelation chapter 22, where the apostle John, he's getting this vision, these visions from an angel. What does he do? He falls down before the angel to worship. What does the angel say? He says, no, no, get up. You're not to do that. Worship God, okay? Okay. And so, with the first clue, we say, he's not a man. The second clue, we say, he's not an angel, okay? So, we're getting closer. And then the third clue is the disclosure of the person's character and that he is holy. And they say this, take off your sandals from your feet for the place where you are standing is holy. Ding, 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 right? I've got it now. Winner, winner, chicken dinner, right? I've got it. Um, I know who this is, because for Joshua, it would have been resonating in his, his ears. He would have heard this before, right? And if you're a student of the Bible, you would have heard this before. This happened to who? This happened to Moses at the burning bush. Moses was at the burning bush, and God called out to him and said the very same thing, take off the sandals from your feet. And so this is God this is God standing in front of Joshua. And just as an aside, we've, we've talked about this idea before, um, how in chapter one, God makes this promise to be with Joshua just as he was with Moses. And here again, we see God confirming the very same thing. He's gonna be with Joshua just like he, is, he was with Moses. And so there you have it. Joshua realizes now that this is God himself. And some scholars, some of you in the room, might be thinking, okay, I wanna know a little bit more. Which person of the Trinity is this? And I'm gonna give you two reasons why I believe that this is the Lord Jesus himself, the pre-incarnate Lord Jesus. Now the first, the first reason you're gonna think is a little bit lame Uh, But I'm going to throw it out there because it's Reformation Sunday. John Calvin himself believed that this was the pre-incarnate Lord. And because if it's good enough for John Calvin, it's good enough for me. So there you have it. A little bit lame. But um, let me give you the second reason. Hopefully this is a little bit more powerful. Hopefully this will resonate with you. When we see the Lord Jesus coming back at the second coming, we see a picture of of what he is like and I want you to hear this it's very stunning to me from Revelation 19 then I saw heaven opened and behold a white horse the one sitting on it is called faithful and true and in righteousness he judges and makes war his eyes are like a flame of fire and then on his head are many diadems and he has a name written that no one knows but himself He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the Word of God. And right there we know that's talking about Jesus. And listen to this. And the armies of heaven arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes what? What? a sharp sword with which to strike down what? The nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And so I hope you see in this vision of Christ coming back in the second coming on the Lord's day that he is the divine warrior. He is the commander of the armies of heaven. And he's coming back with what? He's coming back with a sword to do what? Strike the nations. Just like this person standing before Joshua, he was there with his sword drawn, and he is going to bring it to bear against the Canaanites and the Amorites. And so it's important for us, it's most important for us to realize that this is God himself. It's less important that you agree with me that this is the Lord Jesus pre-incarnate. Well, that's how Joshua, he recognizes and realizes the identity of this person. But now let's look at how he recognizes the title and all of the implications that come with this title. In verse 14, it says, and he said, no, but I am the commander of the army of the Lord. Now I have come. Well, just like in a business meeting, that the business card, that title, it indicates who is in charge, we're going to look at this title and we're going to unpack the implications of it. And we're going to unpack it first by looking at what I find probably the most interesting part of this passage is the response. The response to the question, whose side are you on? And the response that he gets is no. No, it's like he didn't even answer the question. Why? Because Joshua is not asking the right question. And the Lord gives Joshua in that moment what he needs. He discloses to Joshua what Joshua needs the most. He needs to know that this is the commander of the army of the Lord. And so the question for us is, do we approach God in the same way? Perhaps asking the wrong question, perhaps focused on the wrong thing. Don't forget, Joshua is there by Jericho. He is consumed probably in his mind and he's praying. He's like, okay, what are we gonna do? How are we gonna take down this massive wall? And what's more important than the answers to those burning questions is the reply that he gets from God and it points to the greater need that Joshua has in that moment other than getting answers to his question. There's two things I wanna show you that that Joshua has a need about. One is he needs to know that it's the Lord who is in charge. The Lord is sovereign. The Lord is the one who is in charge, right? And the second thing I want you to, to see is that God's agenda, it supersedes Joshua's. It supersedes even our own. So let's look at that first little aspect there it's the Lord who is in charge, right? And so you might have come here this morning and you've got a lot on your heart. You've got a lot on your heart. You've, you're facing suffering. You're facing trial. And maybe for you, you want answers from the Lord. How am I gonna be healed? How is my loved one going to recover? How is, how is this situation that I'm in gonna be fixed and resolved? How am I gonna get a job how is my relationship going to be healed or restored? And the greatest thing in that moment that we perhaps need is not to have the answers to those questions, but to have our eyes pointed to the King and who He is. One of my favorite Psalms is Psalm 46. And, and if you know anything about this Psalm, it, it starts out with some pretty ugly things going on, some pretty ugly things. Uh, poetically right it talks about the earth giving way can you imagine that what does that mean it talks about mountains falling into the sea it talks about nations raging at each other and what does the psalmist do what does he do He, he points us this way look at look at verses 10 and 11 with me be still and know that I am God I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. So in other words, the psalmist does not point to a solution to all that calamity. He doesn't point to a solution, but he points to a sovereign God and calls us to be still, to be quiet. And we see also in the psalm that he is with us we also see a little bit of his agenda. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. And that kind of leads me to that second thing that we need to know when we are in these situations is that God's agenda, God's agenda is above ours. It supersedes our agenda. Now, the, the title of the sermon is that uh, God is not your co-pilot. It comes from a bumper sticker, actually. Uh, some of you older folks have, have probably seen this. God is my co-pilot is what it said. Uh, it's no longer around, and I hope it's not, no longer around because it's, it's actually bad theology, right? God is not your co-pilot, you know, sitting in the second chair, you know, going everywhere that you want to take him. No. He's the pilot, He's the one that is in charge. He has a destination. He has an agenda. You are along on the ride with him. He doesn't serve at your behest. It's actually the other way around. We serve at his behest. He's not this magic genie that we just appeal to. And this is what Joshua would have to recognize. He would have to recognize that there is something greater happening here than just, okay, are you for me? Are you for my enemies? Which is it? It's not that simple. The Lord is saying, Joshua, the battle lines are fuzzy. What you call enemy, what you call friend, it is fuzzy, because guess what? My sword is gonna come against some family within the house of Israel. And you're gonna see this in a couple chapters when judgment comes on the house of Achan, right right and then we already know this from chapter 2 the lord's sword is going to be withdrawn against who we perceive as the enemy he's going to save the prostitute rahab and her family and so god's agenda is bigger than joshua's agenda joshua is thinking in small terms god is thinking in a bigger term and the battle lines are not so clear well one of the reasons i think we hesitate uh, to submit to God's agenda, to submit to his will, is because we don't think he is good. We think actually that we know better than God, that our ways are better than his ways. Psalm 34 says this, the young lions suffer want and hunger, but those who seek the Lord, they lack no good thing. And so my question for you this morning is, do you believe this? Do you believe that if you are in Christ, if you seek him, that you have everything good? Everything good. Do this with me. Put out your hand and put it in a fist. This represents me saying that this is my life, Lord. It is closed to you. I am the pilot. I am the captain of my life, and if you open it, if you open your hand, this is saying, no, Lord, you, you are Lord of my life. Your ways are better than my ways. My life is yours, O Lord. God's ways are the best ways. It's a matter of belief versus unbelief. Let's look thirdly how Joshua, now he responds to the character of this person. In verse 14, And Joshua fell on his face to the earth and worshipped. And the commander of the Lord's army said to Joshua, Take off your sandals from your feet, for the place where you are standing is holy. And Joshua, he did so. And we see Joshua responding now to the character of God, that he is a holy God. And I love how John Frame puts it. And I gave you this quote earlier. Uh, we are not to meet God as an ordinary friend or enemy. In other words, Joshua, when you are approaching God, it's not so simple as friend or enemy. No, don't approach God as an ordinary friend or an enemy, but as one who is radically different from us, before whom we bow in reverent awe and adoration. God's holiness then indicates the fundamental distinction between creator and creature, because you see, God is not like us. He is otherworldly. He is something that we cannot fathom. We tend to bring God down to our level, down to our thoughts. And So if you're here this morning, if you think that you have God contained, that you know everything about him, your God is too small. If you think that our human language can define him and capture everything there is about him. Your God is too small. He is greater than our human language. And if you're here this morning and your God never challenges you, never contradicts you, you never have any friction with God, then you have created your own God. Your God is too small. He is the infinite God. We only know this much about the infinite God you know modern Christianity they have come to a place we have all come to this place where we have become very familiar with God very cozy with God and there's a good part about that right Um, Jesus came and brought God near he made God accessible understandable, familiar for us, and that's great. But don't let that familiarity dull us, dilute us into thinking that he is like us because he is not like us. This is one of our favorite books in our household. It's The Lion, Witch, in the Wardrobe. And um, how many are familiar with this book? I think, I think a lot of people should be. Uh, Written by C.S. Lewis as part of the Chronicles of Narnia. And if you aren't familiar with this book, let me just give you a quick recap so you you know where I'm going when I read this this passage here. Uh, This is about a magical place called Narnia. And in Narnia, the animals and the creatures, they talk. So that's kind of cool. And there's these four children who end up finding their way into this magical land of Narnia, and they're going to have a conversation with Mr. and Mrs. Beaver about a character called Aslan. And Aslan, many of you guys know, points to, symbolizes Christ. And so, here, here this uh, passage that I'm going to read to you. this is Mr. Beaver speaking, and I'll, tr- I'll do my best to, to, to get the right voices here. You'll understand when you see him. "'But shall we see him?' asked Susan. "'Why, daughter of Eve, that's what I brought you here for. "'I'm to lead you where you shall meet him,' said Mr. Beaver. "'Is is he a man?' asked Lucy. "'Aslan, a man?' said Mr. Beaver sternly. "'Certainly not. "'I tell you, he is the king of the wood "'and the son of the great emperor beyond the sea. "'Don't you know who is the king of beasts?' Aslan is a lion, the lion, the great lion. Ooh, said Susan, I thought he was a man. Is he quite safe? I shall feel rather nervous about meeting a lion. Well, that you will, dearie, and no mistake, said Mrs. Beaver, if there's anyone who can appear before Aslan without their knees knocking, They're either braver than most or else just silly. Then he isn't safe, said Lucy. Safe, said Mr. Beaver. Don't you hear what Mrs. Beaver tells you? Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe, but he is good. He's the king, I tell you. That's how we ought to think of King Jesus, the lion of Judah. He is not safe. He is not tame. He is not contained by us in our imagination and our thoughts and what we can think about him. He is not tamed. He is not predictable. He is the Lord of the universe. And the proper response for us is what Miss Beaver says, we ought to come before him with our knees knocking and our hearts shaking. And so the question this morning is, have we forgot what this Sunday morning, what this worship service is all about and that the audience this morning is not really you? Because it can feel that way, that, that, that you guys are the audience this morning, that the, the worship band is here to please you. No, we are all here to worship the King. And so this morning, I want to challenge you and encourage you about something that I've noticed as we've joined Lake Baldwin Church. And over the past couple of months, I come in in the morning and I observe the beginning of our worship service. And it discourages me because I notice right when we do the call to worship that most of the congregation is not here. They're not here. And uh, I don't know if you realize this, but our worship service uh, has a narrative from beginning to end. And every single element is pointing to the king. And when you come in late, you're coming in without taking off your shoes, You're coming in without your hearts prepared, ready to meet this king. That's what I've observed. And I want to challenge you and remind you who it is that we're here to worship. Sunday after Sunday, we're here to worship the king. We ought to come with our shoes off and our hearts prepared. Now, I'm betting, I'm betting if I tell you that next week, Tim Tebow... Tim Tebow would be here. I bet you this place would be packed. People would be here early because you would want to experience all that he would have to say. Here's the reality. We have someone so much greater than Tim Tebow week after week. Here, he is our audience to receive our worship. I'm going to quote John Frame again. And I'm delighted to do so. If you don't know who John Frame is, he's a wonderful theologian. He uh, taught over at RTS. And I'm pleased about this because he lost his wife recently, and I've been thinking about him lately. And so this came up in my studies. Holiness, then, is God's capacity and his right to arouse our reverent awe and wonder. It is his uniqueness, his transcendence as our creator. It is his majesty, for the holy God is like a great king. Whom we dare not treat like other persons. Indeed, holiness impels us to worship in his presence. We need to come with our shoes off, with our knees knocking, our hearts shaking in worship before the king. And so to wrap up our message this morning, we see how Joshua, as he interacts in this business meeting, how he realizes the identity of the Lord, how he recognizes his title and all of the implications of that title, and we see how he responds to the character of a holy God. And we ought to fall down and worship just like Joshua did We ought to fall down in worship because worship is what we were created for. It's our highest end. It's what we are all about. And if you're here this morning and you feel like you've got this hole in your heart, like you have this desire that you can't figure out, I'm I'm here to tell you that desire can be filled by worshiping the Lord. That's what you were created to do. It's your deepest need is to worship him. And so worship Christ. Christ, he is the one who took his agenda and let it be under the Father's agenda. He is the divine warrior. He is the commander of the Lord's army, and on the night he was betrayed, what happened? The commander of the Lord's army, he did not call down that legion of angels to help him. The commander of the Lord's army What did he do with his authority? He said to Peter, lay down your sword. And why is that? So the sword of God's judgment and wrath could turn away from you and me, his children, if you are in Christ, and point towards Christ and slay him with the wrath of God so that you could be forgiven. That's the one that we worship this morning, And I want to close with the quote in your bulletin, the very last quote. It comes again from C.S. Lewis, but this time from The Silver Chair. You can take a look at it. Maybe it's going to make a little bit more sense, especially in light of the scripture where the divine commander says, Now I have come. Listen to this. I have come, said a deep voice behind them. They turned and saw the lion himself, so bright and real and strong, that everything else began at once to look pale and shadowy compared with him. If we see the Lord with our eyes of faith in all his bright glory, no matter what issue, no matter what problem, no matter what fears you came in here this morning with, the good news is it's all gonna look pale and shadowy compared to him. Would you pray with me? Almighty God and Heavenly Father, you are the king to the ends of the earth. You're a king over all creation. and It is your right to receive worship from us, your creatures. And so we pray, Lord, this morning for forgiveness, Lord, in the many ways that we approach you without taking off our shoes, without acknowledging that you are a holy and awesome God worthy of all of our praise, That is the reason we exist, Lord. Forgive us for that, Lord. And Lord, would you strengthen us with faith and with obedience, Lord, to worship you as you deserve. And we ask this in Christ's name.